Hello, and welcome to this reading of the Sioux City Journal from Monday, February 19th. I'm your reader, Mark Bedford. We'll start with today's weather. Today will be mild with clouds and sun, and a high of 49 degrees. Tonight will be clear to partly cloudy with a low of 21 degrees. Tuesday will be mostly sunny and milder, with a high of 56 degrees. And now we switch over to local and state news stories. What made it past Iowa's funnel deadline? Education, election, and immigration bills advanced. Caleb McCullough reports from Des Moines. The Iowa State Capitol was abuzz with activity this week as lawmakers worked to advance bills regulating the state's area education agencies, altering elections, and restricting immigration ahead of a key legislative deadline on Friday. The week marked the first legislative funnel, the last chance for bills to pass out of a committee in either the House or the Senate and remain eligible for consideration going forward. There are some exceptions, and budget and tax bills are not subject to the funnel. The bills that have passed out of committee will still need to pass full-floor votes in the legislature and receive a signature from Governor Kim Reynolds to become law. Majority Republicans have lauded their agenda this year as a continuation of their record of cutting taxes, improving safety, and broadening freedoms. House Republicans have been delivering on the promises that Iowans have expected us to deliver on. House Majority Leader Matt Winschittle, a Republican from Missouri Valley, said this month, We have done right, budgetary-wise, and the state's got a great economy. Democrats, though, have blasted Republicans for passing politically charged legislation that they say fails to meet the needs of Iowans on issues like wages, housing, child care, and health care. If I could summarize it in one sentence, it would be that the bills that came out of committee in the last few days is really an attack on Iowans rather than an attack, than an attack on the problems that Iowans have asked us to solve, said Senate Minority Leader Pam Jokum, a Democrat from Dubuque, on Thursday. Reynolds, a Republican, praised the passage of a number of her legislative pardon me, legislative priorities, in a statement on Thursday. She proposed bills on the area education agencies, child literacy, behavioral health care, maternal health care, and merging and eliminating Iowa's boards and commissions. As the legislative process continues, so will conversations on how we deliver results for Iowans, Reynolds said in a statement. Iowa has cemented itself as a national leader, and these priorities take us another step further. Education Bills Both chambers passed different approaches to change the funding, oversight, and structure of Iowa's nine area education agencies. Reynolds proposed an overhaul of the agencies, which provide special education support, media services, and other services to school districts around the state. The proposal met significant opposition from parents, administrators, and House Republicans. The Senate Education Committee passed an amended version of Reynolds' bill. The Senate version would allow schools to retain most of their funds for special education, and they would have the option to use that money with the AEA or with another party. The bill would also bring some oversight and budget powers of the AEAs under the Department of Education. The House version of the bill, 
which passed out of committee on Thursday, would allow schools to keep their special education support dollars, but require that they still spend them with one of the nine AEAs. We wanted to provide certainty for special education, Iowa House Speaker Pat Grassley of New Hartford told reporters this week. We took Iowans' feedback that we've been having in our meetings and realized how important that was, and we feel our plan provides that certainty in the future when it comes to special education. Senate Democrats criticized the Senate bill and said it is not significantly different from Reynolds' original proposal. House Democrats said they were concerned about how the House version would affect rural schools. We're still looking at the bill, of course, but I will tell you that we disagree with the premise that AEAs needed wholesale change, said House Minority Leader Jennifer Converst, a Democrat from Windsor Heights. We don't believe that we should be making decisions about how kids get special ed services because an out-of-state consultant tells us. Republican lawmakers have also taken aim at diversity efforts in higher education and advanced legislation to teach a social studies curriculum developed by a conservative think tank. House File 2327, which passed out of the House Education Committee this week, would codify several restrictions on the state's public universities' diversity, equity, and inclusion programs created by their governing board last year. The bill would also cap in-state tuition increases at Iowa's public universities at 3% per year without providing additional state funding. Representative Taylor Collins, a a Republican from Minneapolis, said the bill was needed because higher education has become not only more expensive, but also more distracted by issues like DEI and others. Elections Changes to Iowa's election laws, from limiting challenges to Donald Trump's eligibility to banning ballot drop boxes, will remain alive after this week's funnel. The elections bill, which passed committee in both chambers, would block the type of eligibility challenges voters in other states have lodged to Donald Trump's place on the ballot on the grounds that he violated the Constitution by engaging in an insurrection. It would also redefine the state's absentee voting rules and ban the use of ballot drop boxes. The bill would also ban ranked choice voting and create a pilot program for a third-party vendor to maintain Iowa's voter database. Republican lawmakers passing the bill said it would protect Iowa's election integrity and ensure that Iowans have high trust in elections. Democrats said the bill was designed to empower Trump and would put confusion and hurdles in the way of voting. Immigration Enforcement A slate of bills dealing with undocumented immigrants and enforcement will remain in consideration by lawmakers. Lawmakers advanced bills that would do the following. Allow state officials to arrest and deport undocumented immigrants prevent undocumented immigrants from being eligible for in-state tuition, prevent undocumented immigrants from receiving public assistance, criminalize transporting or harboring undocumented immigrants with the intent to conceal them from police, create a system to verify the citizenship of registered voters in the state. Immigrants and activists have rallied against the bills at the Capitol, arguing they hurt Iowa's vulnerable immigrant communities.
For years, legislators have been passing bills attacking vulnerable Iowans, restricting people's rights, and further marginalizing certain communities, Vanessa Marcano-Kelly said during a Migrant Movement for Justice rally last week. Republicans, meanwhile, have said the bills are necessary to address rising rates of unlawful border crossings and ensure taxpayer dollars only benefit legitimate residents. Gender Identity Bill A bill proposed by Reynolds adding new language around sex and gender into Iowa Code passed out of committee last week over the protests of transgender Iowans and civil rights activists who said it was dehumanizing and discriminatory. The bill defines man and woman and several other terms in Iowa Code based on a person's sex assigned at birth. The bill would also allow transgender people to be excluded from sex-segregated spaces like bathrooms and women's shelters. It would also require transgender Iowans to list both their sex assigned at birth and their post-transition sex on certain documents. The bill originally required the identifiers on a driver's license, but that provision was removed. Reynolds and Republicans said the bill was necessary to protect the rights of women in spaces like domestic violence shelters. Organizations dealing with domestic abuse, like the Iowa Coalition, Coalition Against Domestic Violence and the National Association of Social Workers, are registered against the bill. It is the first effort by a state government to reinstitute separate but equal since the 1960s, said Amy Wichtendahl, a Hiawatha City Councilor who is Iowa's first transgender elected official, during a public hearing this week. And it is the most brazen effort by our governor to erase trans and queer people from Iowa. And finally, distracted driving. Rules banning cell phone use while driving are again up for consideration this year, along with an effort to ban the use of traffic cameras for speeding enforcement in the state. The measures are tied under similar bills that advanced out-of-Senate and House committees this week. The House measure includes some exceptions, allowing drivers to hold a cell phone to their ear or briefly interact with a phone for navigation. Law enforcement officials have implored lawmakers for years to pass a stricter restriction on distracted driving. It is currently legal to text while driving, but not to make a phone call or use navigation. Review Orchestra Commission highlights Sioux City Symphony Concert Bruce R. Miller reports The Sioux City Symphony Orchestra performed three works Saturday night that hadn't been heard on the Orpheum Theater stage, but the real headline, one of them was a world premiere by their own oboist, Jeffrey Paul. An ambitious, sprawling work, one that took advantage of some 60 musicians, Concerto for Oboe, let Paul demonstrate his versatility and flair for jazz and swing. The first movement sounded like something birthed during the big band era. The second leaned into bebop, and the third sounded like a tour through world music. Paul also used a piston oboe for a different sound in the second. Most impressive, though, was his ability to give others a showcase while he appeared to riff. The solo spots, including an unaccompanied one, were master classes in what the instrument can do. Paul could resell this as concerto for trumpet and get plenty of buy-in. Only the work's end seemed forced, but that could be the result of catering to others. It was difficult to hear his finale when those 60 others were chiming in too.
Paul's composition would work with fewer musicians. As the first movement demonstrated, it's a great ride through the sounds of the 1930s. If the orchestra is interested in producing a recording, this might be a great candidate. Saturday's Night of Firsts also included Samuel Coleridge Taylor's Overture to the Song of Hiawatha and Edward Elgar's Symphony No. 1 in A-flat major, Opus 55. Coleridge Taylor was an Elgar contemporary and had a similar view of the orchestral landscape. Elgar, however, offered something rarely seen, an oral wave that started with one section of the orchestra and passed along to the others. It was like watching a football game cheer. Remarkable. The symphony also allowed conductor Ryan Haskins to get his best performance out of the horns and one of the quietest moments out of the strings. The modulation was impeccable and a reason to want to hear this again. While Elgar deservedly got top billing, it was Paul's world premiere that stood out. Easily accessible and a perfect showcase, it proved the orchestra contained some of the best performers in the Midwest or even the country. And now these stories in national and world news. Israel threatens Rafah. Netanyahu dismisses calls to halt offensive, vows to finish job. From Rafah in the Gaza Strip. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Sunday brushed off growing calls to halt the military offensive in Gaza, vowing to finish the job as a member of his war cabinet threatened to invade the southern city of Rafah if remaining Israeli hostages are not freed by the upcoming Muslim holy month of Ramadan. Israel's government has not publicly discussed a timeline for a ground offensive on Rafah, where more than half of the enclave's 2.3 million Palestinians have sought refuge. Retired General Benny Gantz, part of Netanyahu's three-member war cabinet, represents an influential voice, but not the final word on what might lie ahead. If, by Ramadan, our hostages are not home, the fighting will continue to the Rafah area. Gantz told a conference of Jewish American leaders. Ramadan, expected to begin March 10th, is historically a tense time in the region. As ceasefire negotiations struggle after signs of progress in recent weeks, Netanyahu has called demands by Gaza's ruling Hamas militant group delusional. The United States, Israel's top ally, says it still hopes to broker a ceasefire and hostage release agreement and envisions a wider resolution of the war sparked by Hamas's deadly October 7th attack in southern Israel. The U.S. also says it will veto another draft U.N. resolution calling for a ceasefire with its U.N. ambassador warning against measures that could jeopardize the opportunity for an enduring resolution of hostilities. But Netanyahu opposes Palestinian statehood, which the U.S. calls a key element in a broader vision for normalization of relations between Israel and regional heavyweight Saudi Arabia. His cabinet adopted a declaration Sunday saying Israel categorically rejects international edicts on a permanent arrangement with the Palestinians and opposes any unilateral recognition of a Palestinian state. The international community overwhelmingly supports an independent Palestinian state as part of a future peace agreement. Netanyahu's government is filled with hardliners who oppose Palestinian independence. Netanyahu wants Israel to achieve total victory over Hamas. 
In response to international concern over a Rafah offensive, he has said Palestinian civilians will be evacuated. Where they will go in largely devastated Gaza is not clear. The suggested timing for the offensive came as the World Health Organization chief said southern Gaza's main medical center, Nasser Hospital, is not functional anymore. Israeli strikes across Gaza continued, killing at least 18 people overnight into Sunday, according to medics and witnesses. A strike in Rafah killed six people, including a woman and three children and another killed five in Khan Yunus, the main target of the southern Gaza offensive in recent weeks. Associated Press journalists saw the bodies. Over 300 detained across Russia. Hundreds flocked to makeshift memorials to honor critic of Putin. Over 300 people were detained in Russia while paying tribute to opposition leader Alexei Navalny, who died at a remote Arctic penal colony, a prominent rights group reported Sunday. The sudden death of Navalny, 47, was a crushing blow to many Russians who had pinned their hopes for the future on President Vladimir Putin's fiercest foe. Navalny remained vocal in his unrelenting criticism of the Kremlin even after surviving a nerve agent poisoning and receiving multiple prison terms. The news reverberated across the globe, with many world leaders blaming the death on Putin and his government. In an exchange with reporters shortly after leaving a Saturday church service, President Joe Biden reiterated his stance that Putin was ultimately to blame for Navalny's death. The fact of the matter is Putin is responsible. Whether he ordered it, he's responsible for the circumstance, Biden said. It's a reflection of who he is. It cannot be tolerated. Other politicians took a more cautious stance. Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva said Sunday that he wouldn't jump to conclusions over Navalny's death. If the death is under suspicion, we must first carry out an investigation to find out what the citizen Navalny died of, Lula said in a press conference after returning from an African Union summit in Ethiopia on Sunday. Meanwhile, Navalny's wife, Yulia Navalnaya, published a picture of the couple on Instagram Sunday in her first social media post since her husband's death. The caption read simply, I love you. Hundreds of people in dozens of Russian cities streamed to ad hoc memorials and monuments to victims of political repression with flowers and candles on Friday and Saturday to pay tribute to the politician. In 39 cities, police detained 366 people by Sunday evening, according to the OVD Info Rights Group that tracks political arrests and provides legal aid. Earlier in the weekend, the group reported 401 detentions in two days, but later updated the number and said that their count may change both up and down over the next few days as information is being verified. More than 200 arrests were made in St. Petersburg, Russia's second largest city, the group said. By Sunday evening, court officials in St. Petersburg reported rulings ordering 154 of those detained to serve from 1 to 14 days in jail. Memorial events also took place in cities across the world. In Berlin, members of the Russian activist group Pussy Riot, 
held a demonstration outside of the Russian embassy, holding banners that read murderers in English and Russian. Dozens of people in Romania's capital of Bucharest also gathered outside the Russian embassy on Sunday to pay tribute to the opposition leader. Many lit candles and placed flowers next to a memorial portrait of Navalny, while several people brandished placards that read, You didn't win free elections by murdering the opposition. Two Minnesota officers, first responder, die in shootout. From Burnsville, Minnesota. A man armed with multiple guns and large amounts of ammunition shot at police officers from both the upper and lower levels of a suburban Minneapolis home on Sunday, killing two officers and a firefighter, authorities said. A third officer was wounded in the shooting in Burnsville. The suspect in the shooting also died, officials said. Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension Superintendent Drew Evans said there was an exchange of gunfire and authorities were still piecing together details. The firefighter and paramedic who was killed was providing aid to an injured officer when he was shot. Authorities said the shootings occurred after officers responded to a call involving an armed man who had barricaded himself inside with family, including seven children. Officials said the family was able to leave the home safely. Details on how the suspect died were not immediately released. The Minnesota Police and Peace Officers Association said negotiations with the suspect went on for four hours before a SWAT team entered the home. Seven children were inside the house, but the city said the family was able to leave the home safely. City officials identified the slain officers as Paul Elmstrand and Matthew Rouge, both 27. Adam Finseth, 40, a firefighter and paramedic, also was killed. Another police officer, Sergeant Adam Medlicott, was injured and being treated at a hospital with what are believed to be non-life-threatening injuries, the city said. Osteen's megachurch holds special service. From Houston, celebrity pastor Joel Osteen's Houston megachurch held a special service Sunday dedicated to healing and thanksgiving, a week after a woman opened fire in one of its hallways before being gunned down by security officers. Osteen's Lakewood Church has not had services since the February 11th, 11th shooting that sent worshipers scrambling for safety. On Sunday, Osteen told parishioners it has been a difficult time with a lot of trauma. Following musical performances, Osteen thanked those in attendance. You just got to know Lakewood is strong and it keeps getting stronger, Osteen said. Fear is not going to win. Faith is going to win. We are going to move forward. Northern California hit with winter storm from San Francisco. The latest in a series of wet winter storms blew ashore in Northern California on Sunday, with forecasters warning of possible flooding, hail, strong winds, and even brief tornadoes as the system moved south over the next few days. Gusts topped 30 miles an hour in Oakland and San Jose as a mild cold front late Saturday gave way to a more powerful storm that will gain strength into early Monday, said meteorologist Braden Murdoch with the National Weather Service office in San Francisco. The winds are here and getting stronger, and the rains will follow quickly, he said Sunday afternoon. Hungary 
a bipartisan delegation of U.S. Senators, Senator Tom Tillis, a North Carolina Republican, Senator Jeannie, pardon me, Jean Shaheen, a New Hampshire Democrat, and Senator Chris Murphy, a Democrat from Connecticut, made an official visit to Hungary's capital Sunday and called on the nationalist government to immediately approve Sweden's request to join NATO. Democracy March Thousands of demonstrators cloaked in pink marched through cities in Mexico and abroad on Sunday in what they called a March for Democracy, targeting the country's ruling party in advance of the country's June 2nd elections. The protests were called by Mexico's opposition parties. Lufthansa Strike A labor union in Germany called on ground staff for Lufthansa to walk off the job at seven airports on Tuesday, following a similar strike earlier this month. The Verdi Union said Sunday that the one-day strike will affect the airports in Frankfurt and Munich, Lufthansa's two main hubs, and some others as well. Murderer Found A murderer who fled from a halfway house in the Phoenix, Arizona metro area is back in custody, authorities say. Officials with the Arizona Department of Corrections, Rehabilitation, and Reentry said Daniel Cahill was arrested Saturday afternoon by the department's Fugitive Apprehension Unit in partnership with the U.S. Marshals Service. Jordan Jordanian soldiers killed five smugglers who allegedly tried to bring drugs into the country from neighboring Syria, according to the country's military. The army said the incident occurred early Sunday. And finally, Turkey. Authorities in Turkey on Sunday detained the director of the company managing a gold mine where a massive landslide in the country's east left nine workers missing, local media said. And on the front page, an investigative special report. Where the pipes led. Will poor families be left behind in race to replace lead pipes in the next decade? Lauren Cross reports. Lead pipes have been banned since the 1980s, but millions of residents in Illinois and across the Midwest remain exposed to lead from water lines, a Lee Enterprises news investigation shows. And the prospects for an equitable fix for low-income families could be dimming, the Lee probe of public records and interviews shows. Lead water lines hold the potential to poison people who drink water from them. Infants and children are particularly at risk for significant health problems tied to lead exposure because their bodies absorb the neurotoxin more easily. Prolonged exposure can lead to developmental delays, lowered IQs, and brain damage. On November 30th, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency proposed long-awaited new drinking water regulations that include a 10-year deadline for water systems to eliminate lead lines, with exemptions for bigger cities like Chicago. A major concern voiced by environmental advocates, however, is how part of the cost will fall on homeowners because the EPA did not outright ban utility companies from charging residents for the remediation. It's a move that will disproportionately harm low-income households, renters, and people of color, according to Suzanne Novak, senior attorney with the nonprofit law firm Earth Justice. 
If we don't prohibit charging a customer, we may very well end up with a two-tiered system where wealthier communities, which are disproportionately white, will have more of their lead service lines replaced than in other low-income and black and brown communities, Novak said. Since high-profile lead contamination crises in places like Flint, Michigan, there has been a major push in recent years to replace an estimated 9.2 million lead pipes in the U.S. Under the Biden administration, EPA has provided nearly $800 million in grants to assist utilities that serve disadvantaged communities. But environmental justice advocates say even with an unprecedented boost from the Biden administration, there's not enough federal or state money to address a glaring problem. What if homeowners can't afford to replace the lead pipes considered part of their private property? According to U.S., uh, pardon me, across the U.S., many utilities argue they are only financially responsible for the lead line from the water main to the curb, and that from the curb to the home is the responsibility of homeowners. So many public and private utilities are ultimately telling residents, pay up or we'll pass over your house. In some cases, utilities are covering the costs by issuing bonds, raising customer rates across the board, or reimbursing customers up to a certain amount once the replacement is complete. In other cases, utilities have conducted, quote, partials, unquote, in which only the public half of the lead service line is replaced, leaving the private side intact and the potential for water contamination in play. EPA has recently proposed banning the common practice of partial replacements, citing dangerous spikes in lead levels post-removal. According to EPA's latest estimates, Illinois could have as many as 1.04 million lead service lines, or about 11% of the country's inventory, leaving millions exposed. Minority and low-income populations are already disproportionately exposed to lead in drinking water, raising concerns in the environmental justice community about utilities placing the burden of costly replacements on those populations. According to the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, young children at highest risk for lead exposure are those living in housing built before 1978 non-Hispanic Black or African-American children, children eligible for Medicaid, and children living in areas with higher poverty rates. Once again, you are listening to this reading of the Sioux City Journal for Monday, February 19th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now we turn to these stories in sports. And for once, we have a local sports story. Sioux City Metros versus Lincoln Junior Stars, 8-1. Solma breaks club record. Sioux City Metros forward got 93rd, 94th goals Sunday. Mason Doctor reports from Sioux City. Nate Solma, the Sioux City Metros forward, broke a club record for goals scored in a career Sunday at the IBP Ice Center. Solma, a Bishop Heelan senior, was tied at 92 career goals going into the game. The existing Metro's record was set by Dan Davies back in 1992. His 93rd goal was greeted with cheers during the second period as the Metro's took on the Lincoln Junior Stars Sunday at the IBP Ice Center. Solma's score gave the Metro's a 5-1 lead. 
Solma quickly got another goal, his 94th, making the score 6-1. to Lincoln took the initiative early in the game, with a goal less than a minute after the action began. They did not score again. The Metros defeated the Junior Stars 8-1 on Sunday. With that, the team also set a single-season win record on Sunday, with 27 wins so far this season. And now in national sports stories, we turn to the NBA. East defeats West 211-186 to in highest-scoring All-Star game. From Indianapolis, the NBA wanted more competition. It got more points instead, more than ever before. And once again, the All-Star Game was all offense. The Eastern Conference beat the Western Conference 211-186 to on Sunday night, with the winners putting up the most points in the game's 73-year history, the previous mark 196 by the West in 2016. It was a flurry of records. The total points of 397 smashed the record of 374 set in 2017, while the East made 42 three-pointers to break the mark of 35 set by Team LeBron in 2019. The sides combined for 193 points in the first half to break the any-half record of 191 set last year, and the East tied an any-half record by scoring 104 by intermission. All-Star MVP Damian Lillard scored 39 points for the East, while Jalen Brown had 36 and Tyrese Halliburton from the hometown Indiana Pacers finished with 32. Perhaps unnoticed, Carl Anthony Towns scored 50 points for the West in just 28 minutes. Shai Gilgeus Alexander scored 31. The highlights were from everywhere. Lillard pulled up from half-court in the third quarter, swish. Luka Doncic tried a shot from about 70 feet late in the first half. It hit near the top of the backboard. Towns even threw an alley-oop to Stephen Curry. The Warriors star is much more of a shooter than a dunker, so he simply laid it in instead. Defense was optional, sometimes accidental. Halliburton had five three-pointers in a 1 minute and 32 second span in the first quarter, helping the East take a 53-47 lead after the opening 12 minutes. NBA Commissioner Adam Silver and other league executives were seeking a more competitive All-Star game after last season's 184-175 matchup was widely panned and television ratings plummeted. Even Hall of Famer Larry Bird, honored Sunday at the NBA Legends Brunch, said he was hoping the message from the league resonated and players took the All-Star game a little more seriously. I know what this league's all about and I'm very proud of it, Bird said. I'm proud of today's players. I like the game they play. I think it's very important when you have the best players in the world together. You've got to compete and you've got to play hard and you've got to show the fans how good they really are. In other NBA news, Bird receives Legend of the Year Award from Indianapolis. Larry Bird is officially a legend. Tamika Catchings was overwhelmed. Jalen Rose was moved to tears, and Reggie Miller hugged his former antagonist, Spike Lee. As always, the NBA Legends Brunch was not lacking for moments. The brunch, held
held on Sunday before the All-Star Game and one of the tougher tickets to get over the course of the weekend, brought together more than 150 former NBA and WNBA players and some of the greatest ever, like Julius Irving, Dominique Wilkins, and Oscar Robertson. Bird received the Legend of the Year Award. Catchings received the Pioneer Award, Rose got the Bob Lanier Community Impact Award, and Miller won the Hometown Hero Award. I have not hit a jump shot in more than 30 years, and here I am, Bird said, after taking the stage. Come on. Dunk Contest Julius Irving wants to see more big names in the dunk contest. G League player Mac McClung won the event for the second consecutive year on Saturday night, beating Boston's Jalen Brown, New York's Jacob Toppin, and Miami rookie Jaime Jaquez Jr. G League. Team Earn Your Leisure won the title at the G League Up Next Games on Sunday, going 2-0 in the four-team tournament. Orlando Magic two-way player Trevelyn Queen won tournament MVP honors. Break. The NBA season resumes Thursday, but six teams will have to wait until Friday. Miami, Atlanta, Memphis, Portland, Milwaukee, and Minnesota. And the NBA stat of the day. 65. Due to injuries, Philadelphia's Joel Embiid won't be able to win a second straight MVP award, but Commissioner Adam Silver said Saturday the NBA's 65-game policy for awards is leading to players playing more, which was the rule's intended effect. Now these hockey stories from the NHL. Rangers rally past Islanders at MetLife. From East Rutherford, New Jersey. Artemi Panarin scored 10 seconds into overtime, and the New York Rangers rallied from three goals down on Sunday to defeat the rival Islanders 6-5 in a stadium series game at MetLife Stadium. Vincent Trocek had two goals and an assist, and Eric Gustafson and Chris Crater also scored for the Rangers, who won their seventh straight and remained perfect in five outdoor games. Rangers coach Peter Laviolette was behind the bench for his fifth outdoor game, tying Joel Kenville for the most in league history. Brock Nelson had a goal and an assist, and Bo Horvat, Matthew Barzal, Anders Lee, and Alexander Romanoff also scored for the Islanders, who fell to 0-1-1 in outdoor games, with both losses coming against the Rangers. Ilya Sorokin stopped 32 shots. Avalanche 4, Coyotes 3. Devin Toes scored the go-ahead goal with 6 minutes and 35 seconds left. Nathan McKinnon had a goal and an assist to give him at least a point in 26 straight home games, and host Colorado handed Arizona its ninth straight loss. McKinnon's point, break, point streak is the second longest to open a season in history. Kings 2, Penguins 1. Adrian Kemp scored twice in the third period as Los Angeles rallied past host Pittsburgh for its third straight victory. In other NHL news, Penguins retire Joggers number 68 jersey. From Pittsburgh, there were jokes and laughter and catharsis, just no tears, at least none from Jaromir Jogger. 
may be because they were unnecessary when the Pittsburgh Penguins retired his number 68 on Sunday. The look on Jogger's face, the subtle catch in his voice, the smile that remains boyish even at 52, said it all. No matter where the NHL's second all-time leading scorer has gone during a professional odyssey that spanned 30-plus years and three continents, Jager has long understood where his hockey home is, the place where he arrived in 1990 as a teenager from Eastern Europe, shrouded in mystery, armed with a mullet that became his trademark, and the kind of prodigious talent that eventually made him one of the game's all-time greats. You ask anybody in the world, Czech, Europe, and you say, Jaromir Jager, and they're going to say Pittsburgh Penguins, Jager said before a 40-minute on-ice ceremony. Surrounded by his mother and former Penguins executives and players, the Mew included, Jager never broke down as he feared he might. Instead, the franchise's fourth all-time leading scorer let his 10-minute speech serve as the exclamation point on a weekend in which he reconnected to the city to which he is forever linked. The 11 years I was here was amazing, Jager said, probably the best years of my life, so thank you for that. And finally, the NHL stat of the day, 8. Florida's Sergei Bobrovsky made 28 saves on Saturday to set a team record with his 8th straight road victory. The Panthers have won 11 consecutive games on the road, one short of the NHL record. In golf, this story from the Genesis Invitational. Matsuyama wins at Riviera with 62. Nine-time champion becomes Asia's most prolific PGA winner. Doug Ferguson reports from Los Angeles. The conversation began seven years ago, when Japanese star Hideki Matsuyama won his fourth PGA Tour title to pass Chigeki Maruyama, his mentor. Maruyama told him the ultimate mark was nine tour wins, a record for most by an Asian-born player. Matsuyama had little reason to believe that would come Sunday at Riviera. Six shots behind to start the final round of the Genesis Invitational, Matsuyama delivered a record performance, 9 under 62, the lowest closing round by a winner at Riviera to achieve the record that really mattered. He now has nine PGA Tour wins, one better than K.J. Choi of South Korea. Reaching nine wins was one of my big goals, passing K.J. Choi, Matsuyama said after his three-shot victory. After my eighth win, I've been struggling with my back injury. There were a lot of times when I felt I was never going to win again. I struggled reaching to top ten, but I'm really happy that I was able to win today. This was an exquisite performance, second only to his 61 in the final round at Firestone in 2017, on a day no one else shot lower than 65. Matsuyama was part of a five-way tie for the lead on the back nine until he hit a beautiful fade with a six iron from 187 yards into a breeze on the tough 15th hole that carried the bunker and rolled out to eight inches for a tap-in birdie. Perfect shot, he said. On the par 3 16th, he dangled the club after his tee shot because it was five yards right of where he had been aiming only to see it roll to six inches from the cup for another birdie. He added a third straight birdie with a chip down the slope on the par 
on pardon me on the par five seventeenth to just over three feet. Matsuyama lightly pumped his fist, a rare show of emotion for him, when his four-foot par putt with a sharp right-to-left break dropped in for a 62. Doug Toole shot 63 in the final round to win in 1986, the previous record. The only downer for Matsuyama was not being able to pose with Tiger Woods, the tournament host who had to withdraw on Friday with a bad case of the flu. To win in this tournament was one of my goals ever since I became pro, Matsuyama said. After Tiger became the host, that goal became a lot bigger. A little disappointed that I wasn't able to take a picture with Tiger today. Matsuyama finished at 17 under 267 for a three-shot victory over Will Zalatoris at 69 and Luke List at 68. Patrick Cantlay and Xander Shoffley, best friends playing in the final group, faded in the middle of the back nine and tied for fourth. Once I saw Hideke finishing at 17-under, it was a bit of a deflator. I'm sure for the rest of the field, Shoffley said, but hats off to him. It's incredible. He's done it a few times now, shooting lights out on Sunday. It was the third time Matsuyama shot 63 or lower on Sunday to win, most recently at the Sony Open two years ago. Maruyama sent him a text that day in Hawaii, reminding him of their talk about breaking Choi's record. Matsuyama said winning never entered his mind when he entered to the course Sunday. Cantley had a two-shot lead and had not taken too many wrong steps, but he was feeling a little ill and Sunday's round was a struggle. Cantley hit only four fairways and nine greens. He missed a 12-foot birdie putt on the easy opening par 5 and then didn't have another look at birdie until the sixth hole. He made a birdie putt from 50 feet on the 18th for a 72. Cantley played with Shoffley, who struggled just as much. Shoffley got back in the mix with a tough birdie on the par 4 10th and holding a bunker shot for eagle on the par 5 11th. He bogeyed the next three holes and then rallied at the end for a 70. List set the early pace. Zalatoris took the lead in the middle of the back nine. At one point, there was a five-way tie for the lead, heading to the tough stretch on the back nine at Riviera. And then Matsuyama took over with three straight birdies. The second shot on 15 was probably the best shot I had, he said through his interpreter. And from what was supposed to have been the Daytona 500, celebrities bring a South Florida flavor to Daytona. Race rained out, rescheduled for Monday. Dan Galston reports from Daytona Beach, Florida. The 305 took over the Daytona 500. Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Pitbull, and DJ Khaled represented South Florida at the Daytona 500 as the trio of Sunshine State celebrities brought a dose of star power to Sunday's scheduled race day that was washed out by rain. Johnson, the wrestler-slash-actor, said he would stay from Monday's rescheduled race to honor his role as Daytona 500 Grand Marshal and give the command for drivers to start their engines. Pitbull was scheduled to perform the pre-race concert in the Daytona infield, but it was scrapped because of steady rain. He agreed to return in 2025 for the same event. 
Khaled said he was unable to stay Monday for his role as honorary starter. The last time the Daytona 500 was postponed a full day was in 2012. Who would have ever thought, Pitbull said, The Rock, Khaled, and Pitt at the Daytona 500. Khaled moved to Miami, home of the 305 area code, in 1998 to kickstart a radio career that led to Grammy wins and a successful run as DJ, producer, and songwriter. Known as Mr. Worldwide, Pitbull was born in Miami and named his debut album M.I.A.M.I. before he released massive hits such as Timber and Fireball. It's incredible to see us all come together for the Daytona 500, Khaled said, but to represent Florida is beautiful. The 51-year-old Johnson is set to return to wrestling for WrestleMania in April in Philadelphia. The Fast and the Furious franchise star played football at Miami and was a reserve on the team's 1991 national championship team. Best college in Florida, Johnson said. The A-listers stuck around the track to promote their current projects. Johnson posted an Instagram video of himself driving past Daytona International Speedway late Saturday night, joking he was up to no good, trouble with a capital T. I got a little cookie last night because I couldn't sleep, Johnson said Sunday. I went to the gym at midnight. I drove by the speedway, all the lights were on, just immediately felt the energy. The Rock offered some advice to NASCAR villain Denny Hamlin. Roll with it. Johnson, whose recent return to the WWE has come in a heel role, said Hamlin should embrace the booze and take part of his and make them part of his racing persona. Hamlin, a three-time Daytona 500 winner, has suddenly become public enemy number one in the Cup Series. He gets jeered more than Kyle Busch when he wins and has leaned into it a little by saying things like, I just beat your favorite driver. The Rock would like to see more. Being the villain is the greatest thing in the world, The Rock said. Everybody wants to be a good guy or good girl. Everybody wants to be loved and cheered and considered the hero, which is great, and it's natural. It's just human psychology and desire. But I have felt in my career and through my experience that I've been very fortunate to have is that the rare air is when you have the opportunity and you grab it by the throat and you don't let it go. And that's the opportunity to be a great bad guy. Johnson has experienced both sides as an actor and as a professional wrestler. I always think that the best and greatest bad guys, bad girls and villains out there are coming from a place of truth. So one of the cool things that being a great bad guy and a great villain offers, and this is my advice to Denny, is not only do you embrace it, but also you get an opportunity to say and do a lot of things that people can't. A lot of people wish they can, but they don't. So you don't have to. Let me and Denny do the talking and get the booze. And now we get some advice from Ask Amy. Like actress Garbo, she just wants to be alone. Dear Amy, I'm a mid-50s mother of adult children. I have healthy relationships with my folks, siblings, children, and my loving partner. All that said, I crave being alone. I have never lived alone. I lived with my family, then in dorms, with roommates, with a spouse, then children. I divorced but had kids at home, developed a new loving relationship, merged households, and now the kids are grown and all doing well. 
I'm a brand new empty nester, and that has thrilled me because I get to be alone more. I love my partner and family, but I want to be fully and completely alone in my own home for weeks on end. I'm not talking about downtime or a weekend away. My job is such that I could arrange to be alone for one to three months, but I feel like my family would be so hurt. I share a home with my partner, so they would need to leave, or I would. I could afford this option. It has nothing to do with anyone but me. I just want to live in isolation for a while. Any advice on how I might broach this with those I love and those who love and need me? Signed, Modern Day Greta Garbo. Dear Greta, Women of our generation tend to be the kinship keepers, and once the chickens leave the roost, the desire to take stock and perhaps not see to anyone else's needs for a while can be very strong. But you don't have to ask permission of your children or other family members to be alone. They are all adults, and they are going to have to come to terms with what might seem like a quirk to them, but which is a real need for you. You and your partner could work this out in any number of creative ways. You might rent a place nearby where you trade off living in the house for two weeks at a time, perhaps spending an occasional night together. Dear Amy, I'm a 35-year-old man. My wife and I got married in our 20s and immediately plunged into being parents to her niece, who moved in with us just before her 10th birthday. We raised her exclusively and, in my opinion, did a really good job. Our niece is now out of the house, and we have mutually agreed that we don't want to have children together. I am enjoying this stage of our lives. We are both successful in our professions and are physically active on the weekends, hiking, biking, and skiing in the winter. My wife has seemed down lately. She is picking at me over things that didn't bother her before. We finally had a heart-to-heart, and she said she wants to have an open marriage. She laid out the ground rules and essentially said that if I didn't agree to this, she would cheat on me. I definitely do not want to do this. I feel trapped and don't know what to do next. Your thoughts? Signed, Hurt and Confused. Dear Hurt, I think your wife is likely already cheating and is now trying to retroactively get you to agree to it. Even if this is not the case, she has presented you with an unacceptable non-negotiable. Preserve your dignity and get in touch with a lawyer. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Monday, February 19th. I'm your reader, Mark Bedford. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thanks for listening.